Listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth, and this is technically not an episode, and it's technically not a tweener. It's nothing. It's just the Colonel. It's, it's part a two. It's a tribute. It's part two of the Colonel. Time is free on this particular non-episode, and um, we have a lot of stuff to play for you. Again, for those, uh, we apologize to those of you who know, but uh, we were uh, backstage at the Fox Theater on May first, the entire day doing interviews, trying to tell a story and capture audio about the Colonel. Uh, then there was this amazing concert with all these wonderful musicians. And then during uh, Bobby Blue Bland's Turn On Your Love Light, Colonel Bruce's favorite song, uh, during the encore, Colonel took the solo from a musician, handed it to the youngest person on stage, lay at his feet, and attempted to leave the building. Um he was revived, but would pass away that night. And oddly, we are in the undisclosed location. We've returned to the undisclosed location. This is where, and I have my dog with me, who was with me that night, where I came to grips with all of this. Uh, it was a, it was a rough night, but not as rough as you might think on the outside looking in, because it's it's the colonel, and I kind of felt like he was with me. And um, and since that night, though, um, since that night. It's really interesting when you talk to people that were close to the colonel and you see the the journeys people have been on. It's almost like he when it's almost like he spread himself. You know, does that make sense? He spread himself. I mean, so many people are doing things now that that he inspired them or they talked to him about and they were holding on to and never did and and people are changing their lives. I mean, I, I can go on and on about people and their stories and and us too. I mean, if you listen to the show, we reveal it all the time. So go, and go quite back. And, frankly, the show was about to end at that point. We nothing. We weren't really getting any traction, and then we got the last little flicker of the wand with Colonel and Matt Wilson, our attorney, our um, our good friend, and someone who's really looked out for the show consistently. Uh, they made sure we were backstage, and that kind of gave us the fuel. You could argue the John Fishman interview caught RJB's ear, and that was one of the reasons RJB contacted me after that. I've I've learned from listening to the Helping Friendly podcast. He's uh, referencing the Osiris Podcast Network. Yes, folks. we're on the Osiris Podcast Network, and we'll real quick say that that's a, a community of um, like-minded music and, and uh, community podcasts. More on that in our ep- other episodes, but go to OsirisPod.com and check them out. But the point being that I've gone back and listened to these Helping Friendly podcasts. And RJB, even though Tom Marshall's the big name, but RJB is in many ways the driving force of this. And that is how he became familiar with us. That is how he reached out to us, that we became one of the flagship stations on the Osiris pod. And 
that to me is the most exciting thing right now about doing this is that all these podcasts are benefiting. It's a very kernel thing that RJB and Tom Marshall have done. They've chosen to shine a light on all these other podcasts and lift, uh, you know, create a tide to lift all of them rather than just think of themselves. That's what Colonel Bruce Hampton did his entire career, his entire life. And we, um, we have um, interviews from that day we're going to play segments from. And these interviews, uh, as a reminder, these are the interviews that happened before the passing of the colonel. So it's put, you got to place yourself in the spirit of the night. Everyone's, um, every, all the musicians are seeing each other and, and just enjoying each other's company. Yeah, it's, it can be hard to understand. It was joy all day. I mean, this was a celebration of the colonel. Everybody was so happy that they could be. The musicians were just as happy to be there as the audience members. And so for these musicians to pull aside five minutes of time would be asking a ton because they're they're really just, it's like a family reunion. And we got, you know, musicians to sit with us for a half hour, sometimes over an hour. Uh, so really, really fortunate on that. And we got some great conversations. And now, a year later, looking back, it's just eerie, some of the things that people said. And on a personal level, it's, it's a little eerie, the timing uh, that... We're doing this because, first of all, last weekend, if you heard our first interview with Colonel, one of the things we talked about was uh, Brandon Niederauer, because that's someone I first heard about from the Colonel. He used to talk to him about me before I even saw him. Mm -hmm. And I made the point in the first interview that this kid will extend Colonel's legacy the furthest, perhaps to the next century. Who knows? But um, I have to say that Humphreys McGee are, are, at this point, friends of mine. And uh, I've seen them grow from a club band to what they are now. So to see Taz sit in with them at the Sweetwater Festival and play um, Stevie Ray Vaughan's Lenny, which I always thought was about Lenny Bruce, but apparently it's about Stevie Ray Vaughan's wife. But I was taking it. It's about Lenny Bruce. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and it also not just it was so beautiful and to slow it down and really get to the beauty of Taz. I mean, that they set the terrain for Taz to just shine so beautifully, particularly Jake. That uh, I was uh, very emotional. I, I'll admit it. I cried. I, I had aftershock tears after. I thought it was, and it won't, they weren't tears of sadness. They were tears of joy. And oh my gosh, this music world at its best can be really such a special thing. I mean, you. I mean, I'm sure folks that listen hear me be very, very critical, and it can be nasty. But at its best, and a lot of times, Colonel is involved. It can be beautiful. And then now tomorrow, I sit down with Johnny Knapp, and um, that leads us to. We are going to have a couple interviews from after. We're going to play a little snippet from Vince Herman, and we're going to play a little bit from my conversation with Johnny Knapp tomorrow, because assuming it happens. Um, but we also have our Peter Buck, Kevin Kinney that we'll play, and Seth and I will argue about who... You know, to be honest, I said something earlier that might have ticked him off, but it would have been him misinterpreting it. We, we could really analyze this interview so much. I already have. This is like our Zabruder film, dude. Uh, we also have Oliver Wood, Kevin Scott. Is that it? But we're going to start. There's one other one, isn't there? Oliver Wood, Kevin Scott. The Fox Th Theater. Yes, we're Foundation. starting with that. Adina Irwin. God bless you. Because I love this. And the Colonel loved this, too. Again, in the spirit of the Colonel. And the giving the that. Uh, Hampton 70 wasn't just a celebration for Colonel Bruce, but money that uh, was raised that night was going to... The Fox Theater Institute. And this is a wonderful thing, because what they do is they reach out to Georgia theaters 
and help support them, whether it's booking, whether it's renovations, what, whatever the case may be. They have emergency grants. It, it, for Deadheads, this is like the Rex Foundation for theaters. I mean, they look, they, they are not just... What, what about for like... Um not just collecting money, but actively going out and finding theaters that really need it. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Well, the, the, the current grants, Everett Center for the Arts in Statesboro is getting a bunch of money from them. The Colquitt County Arts Center in Moultrie, Georgia, is getting a bunch of money. The Dixie Theater in Swainsboro is getting a generous grant. The Imperial Theater. Well, hold in the- on. Generous grants. I mean, we're talking upwards of $30,000. Yes. Uh, most, they, they average about 20000 uh, for most of the stuff they do, these guys. The, um, but then some, you know, the the uh, Winterville Auditorium um, is going to receive almost fifty five thousand. But look at the Imperial Theater in Augusta. That's part of James Brown history. Uh huh. Eight hundred fifty three theater that was a hundred years old, and thanks to the Fox Theater, you know, it, it's, it's going to get some renovations, going to get dolled up a little bit, and it's going to last a little longer. These theaters are treasures, people. Mm-hmm. And the Fox, we almost lost the Fox. We even the corporate world even stepped up to help save the Fox. We won't get into that now. Um, you got, in Atlanta, you got the Seven Stages Theater, um, yes, and that yes. one's a nonprofit theater that hosts a range of shows on two stages in the little in Atlanta's Little Five Points. A lot of theater, some improvisational theater, and that's uh, the big part of the the um, character of, of Little Five Points. And it's so, right next to the variety, and so that um, that fifty thousand is going to that grant's going to help them restore their marquee and support necessary uh, HVAC and other system internal repairs. So it's. It is preservation, and it's amazing. These guys, they really do a wonderful job. They also do stuff uh, with music in the schools and and um, supporting all the local um, types of arts and whatnot. Ira of the Sound Podcast will be glad to know that the Habersham Community Theater in Clarksville has been supported. Uh, Royal Theater in Hogansville, the Grand Opera House in Macon. They sent twenty three over $23,000 to. This is a legendary, wonderful, amazing room. Um, For more information about this, uh, the grant and and the Institute in general, uh, go ahead and go to www.foxtheaterinstitute.org. Again, that's foxtheaterinstitute.org. And we're going to throw it to, uh, we sat with uh, Adina Irwin. We missed the beginning of the show to do this interview because it was important. The concert that night. The the Colonel concert that night, yeah. Because we were there to document. Um, We missed some of the show to do Denny Wally. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, in less than a decade, this is Adina speaking before we throw to our conversation. I think it's important to get this out. In less than a decade, the Fox Theater Institute has truly flourished and brought our goals to life, allowing greater access for the arts throughout the state of Georgia. Historic preservation will mobilize greater economic development through the positive rehabilitation of our partner theaters. By increasing our financial commitments to historic pre- preservation and implementation of specialized grant categories, we hope to make this our most impactful year yet for the Fox Theater Institute. Wonderful work they're doing. For a, a, a venue nerd like myself who spent the 90s finding nuggy venues that she see shows in, this is just a beautiful thing that they're doing here. So, Seth, you want to throw us to the interview? And here's the interview. With Adina Irwin of the Fox Theater Institute. Baby. Scarce, scared, scared, scarred. 
the Fox Theater Institute um, started in 2006 with the grant program, around the Restoration Grant Program, which was really born out of the Fox Theater's desire to help other historic theaters um, with bricks and mortar types of projects. So they may want to restore some historic windows or they may need to restore their vestibule or they may need to get some new seats um, or restore the current seats. So any types of restoration projects, we um, wanted to assist them. And it really came from a place of we were getting these calls from other historic theaters informally asking for help and we really didn't have a way to assist them. So that's that's how the grant program started. Um, the Fox Theater started to fund um, grants, and they were matching grants. So we would, you know, give a grant of $25,000, and the theater would match $25,000. They would have $50,000 um, to be able to do a restoration project. And that's how we started in 2006, um, and we've been doing that. We've probably provided um, bricks-and-mortar grants. We've probably done about 15 around the state of Georgia to date. Um, so that's where we are right now with the grant program and you kind of alluded to the fact that we're expanding that so we can help more theaters and do bigger projects because up until this point we did a lot of isolated restoration projects meaning most of the theaters that we worked with had already been fully restored so they may have had some isolated areas in their theater that they wanted to work on well now we have more funds so we can actually help with larger projects Um, be able to leverage more dollars to be able to maybe do a restoration of an entire theater depending on, you know, what needs to be done. So that's what's so exciting about where we are right now. Is there any speculations on what these theaters need, requirements that these theaters, obviously being historic, would be one, uh, but does it it matter if there's music there? Does it have to be anything? No, it doesn't matter about the programming Uh because many of them are old cinemas. Most of them around the state especially are old cinemas. Um, so many of them are still doing movies. Um, many of them are doing, you know, community programming. Some of them have, um, uh, you know, artistic groups that resident there um, from, you know, small symphonies or, um, or they may have a, an acting troupe. Uh, they do dance recitals. So it's really about the, the theaters meeting their communities where they are and offering, you know, whatever programming that's going to resonate within those communities. And we assist that in addition to the bricks and mortar grants or those preservation grants we just talked about. We also provide block booking grants through Georgia Presenters. So Georgia Presenters is an, is an organization under the umbrella of the Fox Theater Institute. And what we do is we provide funding for these historic theaters as well as arts pro- programmers to be able to go out and buy talent. So what we found when we were providing these historic grants initially was that that's great. We can provide these grants. They can have great theaters that are open and operating, but these theaters also need help with getting programming and affordable programming for their theaters. They can't pay $10,000, you know, for a particular artist to come to Rome, Georgia, but if Rome and Calhoun and Valdosta get together and say, we want this one artist, the artist fee comes down. Package booking. Package booking, exactly. So what we do is we... Well, we created Georgia Presenters to create this group, if you will, a kind of a consortium of organizations or theaters to work together to do block booking, but we also provide block booking grants. So again, those three theaters come together, they decide that they want to, you know, bring a particular artist to their communities. They can apply for a grant from us, Mm -hmm. and we will help offset the cost of the artist fee. Now you talk a lot about grants, you're talking about a lot of money. Where's the money coming from? It comes from the Fox Theater. So the Fox Theater has been very, very um, 
blessed, if you will, I think, over the years. One of the promises that the Fox Theater made when it was saved in the 70s is that they would not go back to the community to, with a handout and ask for funding. And it has operated in the black ever since the mid-70s. And so the money that we have for the Fox Theater Institute really comes from the earned revenue of the Fox, from ticket sales. And the Fox has done such a great job that we have excess revenues, and those excess revenues go into the Fox Theater Institute mm-hmm. and back into the theater, back into the historic theater, the Fox Theater as well. And that's what's happening here today, right, Rob? Yes, and that's what this whole event, Hampton 70, is for. But a lot of our listeners are from outside of Atlanta, so mm-hmm. you mentioned briefly about how the Fox had to be saved in the 70s. Can you talk for a moment about that and how a little more mm-hmm. about how that inspired this? Right, so, you know, in the probably the 50s and the 60s, when uh, many cities uh, experienced suburban flight, people started to move outside the cities. And when the movie business started to change and they went from having a single um, screen theater to multi-screen theaters, the single screen theaters started to suffer around the state and really around the country. But we're really the ones that are suffering because right. those, are the, those places were right. magical. Right, right. And so people moved away, and so the Fox was not unlike many of the theaters in the city of Atlanta that uh, fell victim to um, low numbers, low attendance numbers, therefore low um, revenue dollars for, for movies. And in the mid-70s, um, because the Fox wasn't doing so well, and Southern Bell um, was looking for a headquarters, the Fox kind of fell into what you would call a perfect storm. We were on Peachtree Street. Southern Bell wanted to have their headquarters on Peachtree Street. They wanted to build a tall building and have a parking lot, and this was prime real estate for that. So the Fox was looked at it to be demolished. And let's point out, it came very close very to being close. demolished. Uh-huh. It became very close to being demolished. And for the first time, or at least one of the first times in Atlanta, um, citizens of Atlanta came together to save a historic structure. Up until that point, many of the historic theaters had already been torn down. Many of the other historic sites um, in, in Atlanta had, been, had succumbed to demolition as well. And so this was the first time that citizens of Atlanta stood up for historic theater or historic structure to save it and were successful. And actually, um, that movement that happened in Atlanta actually was one of the catalysts for the preservation movement around the country. Um, And many theaters and other historic structures around the country in many cities um, started to be saved because the citizens came together and followed kind of the same methodology and path that the citizens of Atlanta, Atlanta did to save the Fox Theater. But the Fox was saved, came very, very close um, to being demolished. Um, Maynard Jackson, the mayor at the time. Maynard Jackson. Yeah, Maynard Jackson. He would not sign the demolition order to give um, Atlanta Landmarks, which was the name of the nonprofit organization that was created during that time period to help to save the Fox, give them time to raise funds and get loans to be able to operate the theater. And so at that point, um, they were able to secure a loan. Um, to be able to keep the Fox Theater open. Um, they paid that loan back um, about 18 months early, and ever since then the Fox has been debt-free and operated in the black. Mm. Yeah. Wish I could say the same about myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of theater, though, a lot of plays in here, right? Yeah, a lot of things happen at the Fox. Um, Everything happens at yeah. the Fox. What are you well, saying? If, if it's something major, it comes through here now. Yeah, we're very mm-hmm. fortunate. Um, I I think it's a lot because the Fox is a very large theater. Um, There are not very many large theaters like this that are north of 4,000 seats left in the country. Um, And so the Fox is very unique in that way. Um, And it makes it attractive for, for touring artists to come through. But the Fox does about... 
including what we do in the ballrooms, because remember we have the ballrooms and we do a lot of private events. So including what we do in the ballrooms, we do about 350 to 400 events a year at the Fox Theater. And what's this expansion I say at the Fox? I noticed that uh, where the bathrooms were in the main, uh, where the jazz club used to be mm-hmm. next door, um, mm-hmm. you're right. expanding there, yeah? Right. So, you know, again, we are the Fox organization, I think, has been very responsible about staying um, very cognizant of what's happening in the um, community as far as competition is concerned. What we realize is that the Fox Theater is the only premier event venue in Atlanta, and we consider like Phillips Arena and even SunTrust Park and the Tabernacle and, and all of those venues as competitors of ours. We're the only premier venue in the market that doesn't have a premium experience. So when you purchase a ticket at the Fox at this point in time, you get your ticket, you get to come in, you get to sit where everyone else is sitting and buy tickets, I mean, buy food and drinks, stand in line like everyone else. There's no opportunity for you to go to another room or a club or what have you or have a VIP experience where you have elevated food and beverage or parking. That doesn't exist right now. So we recognize that, you know, we are the Fox, but we also need to stay relevant. And so the opportunity to be able to do that uh, came about as we looked at our our footprint and where could we potentially build that premium experience, um, a VIP type of experience, and that presented itself at uh, what we call the northeast corner of the building, which is where Churchill Grounds used to be. And at this point, we are building a club, a premium club or a premium lounge called the Marquee Marquee Lounge, and it will be open um, in the fall. And we're you would very say excited. it's open for Biz Marquee? No, not Biz Marquee. Oh, boy. <laughs> open for Biz Marquee. <laughs> this one is presented by Lexus. Um, but it is uh, going to be a great experience because it will have an interior space, of course, but it will have rooftop amenities. So Ooh. the rooftop of that club right above um, where Churchill Grounds used to be will be open, as well as the rooftop above our arcade. Right, I was going to say, you don't, there's a new rooftop. Mm-hmm. What, what's that all about? So again, that's just, there's not a lot of rooftop experiences on Peachtree Street, and you have to use what you got, right? You know, the Fox is in a great location. Um, We offer this great entertainment. Why not be able to, on a night like this, it's so beautiful, be able to go up on the roof and enjoy drinks and food. Just for ticket holders? Um, It's just for ticket holders at this point. So if you purchase tickets to come to the Fox Theater, um, you can get access to the club a few ways. You can get it through a membership. Um, so you can purchase a membership to come have access to the club every time you come to see a show. Or you can get tickets through um, if you want to upcharge on your event ticket that you might buy because you come two or three times a year, but you want to go to the club on those two or three times. You can gain access that way as well. But at this point, the club will be open for every event that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyone who wants to come or, or join as a membership or pay to come in um, with a the ticket, they are welcome to do so. And the photos from what I saw, they plan to be very Moroccan style it looks mm-hmm. looks like it's gonna be gorgeous and if you ever need someone to podcast up there rob and i are available heck yeah <laughs> absolutely could you tell us about fox in a box fox in a box fox in a box is uh is is basically us being able to take the fox to students around the metro atlanta area so we know that a lot of students in schools with school budget cuts etc don't have the dollars for field trips to be able to bring students to the fox for us to tell the fox story we take the Fox to students around, this, around the metro Atlanta area. Right. So it's basically a traveling exhibit. 
and we have teaching um, artists that go with that exhibit to help tell the Fox story, but we use the Fox story to support curriculum standards. So, for instance, when we go talk to third graders, we talk about the Civil Rights Movement. We talk about the Fox Theater and what the Fox's role that it played during Jim Crow, during the Jim Crow era, because we, we are one of the few, I think, I think, organizations, period, that still has actual, you know, I think, um, uh, proof, if you will, or pieces of history that still exist. So Last we, two rows of the balcony, would that be yes, an example? Yes, exactly. So the balcony, the what we call the gallery right now was a segregated seating section, and it's still denoted by a wall that exists, a, a, a low wall that exists there. We still have the separate entrance um, that um, African Americans had to take to get to that area. We have separate restrooms that are very different than the restrooms that exist downstairs. So we're able to kind of tell that story and show the contrast between the two experiences. Um, so we use the Fox's history and the Fox's story to support those curriculum standards. And you bring that around, it's, it's just traveling, you bring it to malls, you bring it to schools, you bring it it's everywhere? It's only schools. We do schools, and right now we are looking, we, we focus on students that are K through 5, and we're serving about 6,000 students a year at this point in time. Oh, so that, that, that exhibit is going to quite a few schools throughout the year and telling the Fox story. And then we also have the opportunity for schools that do have the budget to be able to come here and actually do a tour of the Fox, an educational tour, in which that part of the tour, the civil rights part, is a real popular um, portion of the tour. Mm-hmm. Well, as the fan side of this podcast, I spent the 90s, much of the 90s, traveling around the country and seeing music. And my favorite thing was going to great, classic, old, historic theaters. The work you're doing is very, very significant and important to people like me, and I thank you very much. I'll give you my card at the end of the interview. Anything you ever need from me would be great. Thank you. Can we move off topic of some Fox, couple Fox things? Real quick? Yeah, you got got time for... uh, There was a guy who lived here for a while because of some old... What was the deal on that? Is he still here? The organ player. No, so Joe Patton. Yeah, what's the deal on that? Joe Patton lived here for quite a while, and he passed away not too long ago. But Joe Patton was a part of the original Save the Fox campaign. So back in the 70s, two things Joe Patton did. He did a lot, but two of the top things that, that he did and made him really prominent for the Fox Theaters. One, he re- he restored the organ. He restored the Mighty Mo organ. He did it by himself, basically. Um, and then the second thing was that he was very instrumental in the Save the Fox campaign. So when the um, all of the Atlantans came together to to rally and march and all of that. Joe Patton was right in the middle of it. He also was a part of making the case, you know, to the state assembly that by saving the fox you could change the paradigm of the Peachtree Street corridor. So you remember Peachtree Street was very different than what it looks like now, but his argument was that, you know, if you save the fox, the Fox Theater could become a catalyst for basically changing the way the Peachtree Corridor looks now, which Basically, what he talked yeah, about his was vision. Right. His vision yeah. was was dead on because I really think that the Fox Theater play has played a, a great role of of mm-hmm. making Midtown look like what it looks like today. And that's our argument too when we go into these towns around the state of Georgia, these main streets, about the power that a an, a great operating, functioning, you know, part of the community theater, historic theater can can have a part in in those towns and bringing back main streets. Absolutely. What's the first show you ever saw here? The first show I ever saw here actually was Widespread Panic. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. With the Aquarium Rescue Unit opening, Thanksgiving, yeah, so, 1992? No, this wasn't. No, because I've only been here for 12 years. So oh. I got here in 2006. And, and it that was, was when, your introduction? That was my first event that I worked here. So oh March boy. 21st, 22nd, 23rd of 2006. 
That's great. And, and I'm she, sorry. Didn't, she didn't <laughs> run out the door screaming. No, I did not. I love widespread, but the fan no, has no. to be a little, come back. I swear it's not all like this. The Cats is next split. week. Come back. What's your favorite show you've seen here? Widespread Panic. Oh, that's hard. <laughs> widespread Panic is definitely one of my favorites. I like Widespread Panic because, of course, the music, but I like the, the audience. Everybody's just here to have fun and right on. really take advantage of really what this theater was all about. You know, mm-hmm. um, It's about everybody. But I think that when I, I don't know if I, I can say favorite, but what I like about the theaters is it vers- its versatility. We do everything, oh, yeah. even... To the to some degree, sports events because we've had a boxing match or two, you know, in the ballrooms before. But you know, we do things from UFC weigh-ins to um, to we just debates. Did, right, yeah. you're talking yeah. about that presidential earlier. debate. In presidential, 19... yeah, presidential. Yeah, we have presidential debates and presidential 84. visits. Um, and you know, we just did the E League with Turner, so we we're now doing virtual types of events. You know, um, mm-hmm. so it's about just being able to continue to think about how this theater can meet the community where they are, have events that, re- that keep us relevant, because our job is to make sure that this theater is here 100 years from now. Absolutely. And there's an elephant in the Fox's future. <laughs> they got Hamilton, dude. Ah. Absolutely. Now, well. how long of a run is Hamilton doing? Uh, Hamilton is going to be here for, I believe, three weeks. Can you expand that at all? I thought you were about to ask no. her for tickets. <laughs> so, so, I mean, were you waiting for it and just keeping the dates open whenever they said they could do it? You were like, okay, yeah. I mean, absolutely. We, you, yeah, absolutely. We were waiting to be able to, when Hamilton said that they were going to go on tour, you know, we work with Broadway Across America, who is our, our Broadway partner, um, and we were definitely there at the doorstep saying we're ready when they're ready. And thank God they're, they're coming next year. And All I right. like theater, but I'm a little theater naive. Mm-hmm. There's multiple touring companies. When you book something like that, are you breaking down what touring company it is? Or are you like, no, nope, it's Hamilton, it's amazing, whatever they give us will be good? Well, when it's a show like Hamilton, there's not multiple Hamiltons out there. Oh, so, there's, I thought there was going to be. I thought no. there were... Well, so there might be, so there may be two, two Hamiltons that are touring, but they're coming out of the same company you will so you're not going to have like another broadway company that's got some okay. other you know like it's not like the like now where you have you know the different um temptations and you got like five different temptations groups touring the country it's not that way so anything or gallagher yeah so that the quality of the performance is protected in that way so we the hamilton that we get is definitely going to be worth seeing and impossible to get tickets to. is it already sold out not sold out yet, but it will be. Yeah, it'll sell yeah. out. In the- so I'm going to head down to the box office right now. <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> Is your credit card up? <laughs> hey, thank you so much for your time. Did, and you seal, did you seal off that way to sneak in? Oh, wait. <laughs> what? There's a way to sneak in here. Rob. You got to seal that off. We got to seal it off. We'll get on it. We'll get on it. <laughs> Today, Go today and hear tomorrow.
delightful delightful interview i really hope rob that we can take an idea you and i have had uh, one that you've um birthed and one that i am riding on but i really like to do some wts lives at some of these venues um maybe even when they do like the uh, big check ceremony i remember i talked to the fox a little bit about it but i think the idea is there where you know we we set up and we interview a musician that's that's got notoriety um, that has history in the theater. So I don't know, something there. Well, I'll tell you one thing. One thing I I said to Allie, who works with Adina at the Fox Theater, and I said to Adina, and I mean it, anything we can ever do for this institute, please let us know. I love both of you. Love what you're doing. Adina, I was like, I was like gazing and gazing into her eyes. So believe and love what she's doing. It's just such a great thing. I was like falling in love with her. I'm twisted, aren't I? You save a theater. You fall. You you you. That's the way. Most men, you get to their heart through cooking. With me, it's it's saving and <laughs> rehabilitating a theater. I'll, I'll I'll cook my own dinner. Thank you very much. Rob's uh, Rob, what do you what are you cooking for dinner? Yeah, I'm just gonna you know pick up at a drive through. Mm, I don't know. I'm getting into kale me crazy. You have this fish bowl and you get the wheatgrass and then it's like it's like you're high without having taken any. Those silly drugs. All right, next up on deck. A guy who has become a major figure it's in the Atlanta music scene. Not just Atlanta, in the in the national music scene. You've you got that new band out there, the Matadors, have you, have, with, sure. which is with Eddie Roberts uh, from New Master Sounds. also has uh, uh, the singer from... Um, any rate. <laughs> he has okay. Fork, which is on the Ground Up label, which opened for Snarky Puppy here oh, yeah? at Variety. He's now a permanent member of that band. And I, uh, if you, the Relics Magazine with um, oh, the Young Soul guy on the cover. Leon Bridges? Is that who's on the cover? I don't know. The recent, uh, I have a review Leon, in there. I think so. Kevin Scott also in very Colonel-like fashion. Snarky Puppy back about 10 years ago, couldn't find a gig in Atlanta. Oh, I don't think I think it was like five years ago. I don't think it was. No, even, it's it's definitely that long ago. It's in yeah. I don't know. Listen to the. Uh, we'll have to listen to the interview yeah, where we we'll talk up. about it. It's coming. <laughs> I'll be working on that soon. Actually, I'm looking forward to that. I honestly think that's one of our best interviews. Michael League from the, uh, Snarky Puppy, the founding member and driving force behind them. Point being, but what Kevin, Kevin did was m- m- shared his gig with them so that they could play Atlanta, and, and it was no looking back. That they, they never had, to, they were never want for an Atlanta gig again mm-hmm. after that. So Kevin Scott and the Colonel, trip, you know, looking out for other musicians, much like the Colonel himself. And the Colonel really had Kevin under his arm for several years. I mean, when Kevin was just cutting his teeth here in Atlanta, he would be, he would play the uh, Mojonic Wednesday Night Jam. But here's a guy that like. Bojanic's a restaurant that had an open jam. Uh, and the Colonel would hold court there. Yeah. I mean, and even Derek is, Trucks played this room. It was amazing. You never know who was going to show you up. You would never know. But yeah, Kevin, though, man, like he's just, he's a, he, he's such an appreciated musician um, all across the board. So many, mu- so many other musicians want to play with him. He's dizzyingly, dizzyingly versatile. And then, yeah, on that versatility... I mean, at one moment, he's playing with some of the biggest jazz cats you've ever heard of. And then the next minute, he's like playing in a rock ensemble and he can hold it on either end of the stick. Well, I always 
It's always fun because sometimes you go to these Atlanta Funk Society gigs or whatever, and you, or a lot of these shows, you don't know who's going to show up. And you look on stage, you see Kevin, it's like, yes. But then again, we have a lot of that. It's not to put down any other basis. No, we, no. we talk about Ted Pecchio. He's wonderful. The great Todd Smalley is ours. We claim him. He's we, Mo- Even Mofo. though he's in Colorado and he's been there. So I bumped into Todd a little while ago. He's, our, he's ours. Okay. <laughs> and that's what I told him. I was like, you might live in Colorado, but you're still an Atlanta boy. You're still, and you know he's been in Colorado for like 10 years? You're still Kennesaw to me. So weird how time flies. But with Kevin, Kevin really is a great example of a musician that is Bruce. So let's. Um, it's interesting the way he initially stumbled upon Colonel and and how it became part of why he chose to come to Atlanta. Here it is from backstage at the Fox Theater, May one, two thousand seventeen. This is Kevin Scott. The administration minister, the county seat in the fifth district, which had appropriated the legal funds that had been delegated by the constituency of the caucus. The mayor of Alabama sequestered the late taxation of the fee that was relinquished by said property and monies were filtered. The ministers administrated the administrations to the congressional legislative body and the Senate approved bills signed by the legislature. The office vetoed pluralities in the party platform. The magistrate and the council general declared me legally parked after the effect had worn four damn radial tires. I was false accused. The district precinct received notification of delinquency in regards to status of inerrancy of documents reissued in light of current standing. You know, I was about 16 or so. I was getting the collecting vinyl, you know, and we had this really, you know, crappy record player. And um, this guy, we used to call Stash because he had this mustache that would go all the way down to his chin. And he was this little fiery kind of country guy. He had a record shop at the flea market. And, it, and I was getting real into the, like, kind of late 60s free jazz and then, like, Frank Zappa stuff and then... Um, so I was, I was getting more like the more like artistic esoteric kind of uh, style of improv, you know. So I would, he would tell me, I, if you give me a list of records, I have a rec- I have a warehouse with two million records in it. You can't stump me. So I would be, every weekend I would you know go play my gigs, and I had this little you know after school job. I would take some money out and go buy some vinyl. And I brought him a list of all these people like you know Pharaoh and Albert Eiler and. Later, John Coltrane and... Uh, Pharaoh know. Sanders, you mean? Yeah. And uh, he was like, oh, you like that stuff? Well, just take this one for free. It was, <laughs> it was you know, the cover had this guy, like, he had like a powdered wig on, and this other guy, like a Beatles jacket, and I was like, okay, I'm going to check this out. And uh, it was it was just mind-blowing because, you know... I have a, I have, my, I have a, you know, all my family are musicians. They all of them played in Atlanta at one time, and uh, I just didn't know that was happening here, because you always associated with like the heavy improv, kind of free stuff, just with New York, you know, or kind of like you know that kind of, kind of West Coast improv that happened, you know, in the kind of early seventies, late sixties too. But so it blew me away. I mean, it was you know Ricky Keller was on it and uh, Jerry Fields, I think. Um, and uh, I was like, wow, this is crazy. You know, this is happening four hours from me. You know? uh, 
And at the time, I had to stay at this place called Moon Times, which is a widespread panic bar in Dothan. And uh, the bartender, this guy Sammy Norris, was very influential in my development because, you know, first off, he's letting me go in there underage and, you know, play and have a good time. Cause he, nice, Sammy! He actually thought I was like 30 at the time. You know, he didn't know I was still in high school. <laughs> because of the music you listened to, probably. His defense, you know. But uh, he had, you know, it was a, they had these, Wednesdays was tall boys and trading days. So, yeah. But at the time, like, I, you know, I was in high school, I was not into the jam band stuff. You know, I was like a, a you know, jazz metal funk guy. So I was like, I don't know, what, what is this stuff? What we got so obsessed with it. Actually, it sounds like Humphreys McGee just described. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, right? Uh, but uh, uh, So, yeah, I, I'm hanging out one night. He goes, man, just go through my CDs. And he had, you know, that's back in the trading CD day. So he had stacks of oh, these yeah. books. And he's like, just choose a few out of there. So I'm going through it. And I choose, you know, like some Bloodkin stuff. And uh, uh, what's that cat? Um Jerry Joseph? Yes. Some of his stuff with Dave, duo stuff. He had, And then there was this yellow CD with this guy with a mustache, <laughs> and it looked kind of weird. So I took it, and that was the first ARU record. So like in a week's time, I got bombarded oh, wow. with this whole thing. And that's, how, that's, how the, that's how it works, though. Yeah. Oh, man. It was, I mean, that, that first live ARU record was just so groundbreaking because it was, it was like... The is the top, the absolute top of the line musicianship with this whole like, you know, as Bruce would say, uh, you know, it's like what is, he, what is my favorite quote from him is, you know, take what you do seriously, not yourself. Sure, yeah. and that's what they were doing. It was like this amazing music and comedy and performance art. And uh, anyway, it blew me away. And then didn't make I, you frightened though, did it? Uh, oh, I mean, basically, basically, basically right it all? made me frightened. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and after I heard that and had those two albums, it it kind of like I kind of shifted towards checking more of that kind of scene out. And then, at what point did you decide to move here? That's a, you know that's a funny story because I always knew I'd be in New Orleans because I went to a uh, that this this organization called the IJEA, I think. And it was a, a young jazz associ- association for musicians, and I won this soloist award. So when I was, you know, sixteen, they sent me to Loyola for the uh, the jazz camp. With all, and I was so excited because it was for the first time I was going to meet all these young musicians who were serious. It was a total letdown, essentially, because it was, you know, I was kind of just into other stuff besides straight ahead, you know. But uh, so I was like, you know what? I know the I know all the professors at Loyola. I'm gonna go to Loyola for jazz, get a jazz degree or something. Um, but at the t- at about 17, when I was a senior, a lot Moon Times was booking regional acts coming in all the time. You know, so it was like Tea Leaf Green, Moonshine Still, all that exactly that <laughs> whole kind of vibe. You know, and uh, so this band called Radio Theory came into town, and at the time, my band was just me and a drummer. So it was like I would at the time I was doing a lot of that slapping kind of solo bass stuff. Yeah. I want to hear how it sounded, but I met these these guys, these two brothers, and uh, we kept in touch a little bit and lost track of them. And I went to community college because I'm like I'm gonna take care of all these little classes before I have to go. I can transfer to Loyola as my plan. Well, of course, because it was you know community college in Dothan, it didn't work out. 
I was miserable, so I was like, I'm not going back. I left last than half a semester, pretty much, you know. And so my parents, they're amazing, supportive parents because they're musicians. They were like, well, you either go to school or get a gig. Like, you do not want to stick around Dothan. I was like, I don't want to be in Dothan another month, you know. <laughs> so I'll, you know, I was working my day job at the screen printing place. I get a phone call from one of these brothers in his band Radio Theory. And uh, he's like, hey, man, looking for a bass player. Would you move to Atlanta? And I was like, yeah, because Bruce and those cats are up there. <laughs> Like, yes, you know, Ricky Keller are these dudes, you know. and uh, What year was this about? God, this is 2003. Isn't it funny that we say that like it's so long ago? But, I mean, it is, it is now. Yeah. And it's important to point out Ricky Keller, longtime bassist with Colonel Bruce Hampton, also known in jazz circles. He used to have gigs in New York where Freddie Hubbard or Ornette Coleman, all kinds of people would show up and just sit in with him after they played their gigs, I mean, right? Ricky is really like, you know, he is he's like the – like the Wizard of Oz in a lot of ways. Like his, he, he contributed so much to Atlanta. You know, I never had a chance to meet him. But uh, anyway, so I moved up here. This guy, Lynn Rosen, who was in the band, he ran the jam at the Brandy House on Mondays. And for those of you listening that don't know the Brandy House, just a quick quick uh, background on that, Rob. A legendary um, converted con- grocery store in Buckhead that a uh, radio show used to set up and do radio things, regular things there, and they had all kinds of jam bands and other acts that would come in, and Colonel had he regular residences. He held, he held court there. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah, sure, he, Colonel uh, was definitely the house of the Colonel. And he brought in the likes of uh, Jimmy Herring. Warren Haynes, John Popper, even Mike, uh, Mike and John from Fish mm-hmm. came one day, and on our show, uh, Colonel talked about how people were coming in from the ceiling that night to get in there. <laughs> you Fish yeah. fans are crazy. Yeah, um, so it was, and I knew about the Brandy House because of because this record that uh, Sipe and Brian Lopes put out. Uh, live at the Brandy House. And Brian Lopes, a great, great saxophone player. One of the player. greatest in the world. It was, uh, but anyway, so I was, I was like, holy, I was like, man. So I'm gonna, now I'm playing the house gig at the Brandy House. And I was thinking these guys just live there, you know. So I'm like, oh man, if I'm pulling up, man, I wonder if Bruce and these cats will be there, <laughs> you know. But that was like the downfall part of the Brandy House. Yeah, I, got I moved here in 2003, and I, I, I felt I, I experienced that, and it's so weird, like. Coming to a city like this and being like, oh my god, yeah, I can't wait to go to this, and then it's not what it, it was. It was, yeah, it was kind of. It was shifting horse. to Jake's. Yeah, toad house, and at that house. point, even so, the Toad House was kind of you know hitting the pond too. Yeah, it was. Yeah, so that's when I got there. But it was cool because it was basically an improvised jam session, you know. And uh, so I started doing that gig and started meeting more people, and I went on the road this band for about a year, um, and we opened for Bruce. I was about 20 or 21 at, in Albany when he was playing with the Code Talkers. And I just remember being like, I was just like, it was like star. I was like completely <laughs> horrified to look at him in the eye because it was, he was just, you know, his presence. And uh, I was very, so excited just so I could even talk to him. And, uh, and you did get to talk to him that night? I talked to him briefly. You did know. he guess your birthday? He was a month off. But oh, Can you make a note of that, Josh? I want to I wanna know. Who he actually got right. He was right. a day right, but a month off. But my, I have a, uh, um, I do have Aquarius uh, moon, so he was kind of right, you know. But his, you know, he was he was eighty percent right. But um, but yeah, so uh, so I left that band and started uh, playing this band called Holly Kind. It was like a kind of a big regional touring kind of 
Grateful Dead, Auburn Brothers kind of frat band for years and just did that circuit still and you know and eventually got the Tuesday I did my jam at the Tuesday night at the five spot which I've had been doing that now it's at Elliott Street Pub for 11 years wow it's crazy that is insane you know and uh, so yeah uh, but I always it was so weird Bruce was always like on the radar somehow like I'd go to Whole Foods and there he's in line in front of me I'd just be like <laughs> he's like I Albany, Georgia. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I couldn't, I was just frozen in time, you know. But. And then um, eventually this this great time period, maybe it's about six or seven years ago, there's like this big resurgence of young musicians. So that's when know, Nick, uh, Rosen. Nick, Nick Johnson, Dwayne, mm-hmm. um, Danny Paschal, all these, We it was like this, these young guys who were, were about, Dwayne and Nick were a little younger, but we're about 24 or something. And uh, and Nick's a good Boston boy. Yes, he is. He always will be. Um, but uh, so at the time, my session was a jazz session because I was still thinking I was going to be a jazz musician. You know? And uh, then I figured I was this one day I was up there playing, and it was just literally if, if you remember the old five spot, the door, oh, yeah. the front. There's horn players, a line out the door waiting to play choruses, you know. <laughs> and, you know, when you play bass like that, you're playing a standard. It's like eventually you're like, let's just cut this off. So I just, out of a complete defiant moment, I went, I ripped the page of, out of the kind of the Bruce book. And without telling the club, I booked six guitar players, seven horn players, two drummers, me and Ted Becchio, a percussionist. <laughs> And we literally played noise for two hours. And that was the moment that it, the, the kind of the line of sand happened where, you know, we're, we're going to do, we're gonna, I'm really going to try to carry on this tradition of, of this Atlanta sound. We're going to step know. into the world of Zambi. Right. That was the moment, you know. And, um, and then, you know, when me and Dwayne started playing, me and, I got Dwayne to get with Holly Kine, and we, you know, played four nights a week forever. And, we had always side products. But then when uh, Bruce started coming to my gigs at Bojanic. That Wednesday know, night series, that was so great, great, right? Man, oh, amazing God. Wednesday night series they were doing for a while. and uh, Right near Claremont, North Decatur. That's right. It was, the, it was, those Wednesdays were killer. But So Bruce comes in one day, I'm playing, and I'm like, oh, oh my God. What's, you know? So, of course, I'm thinking, like, I just did awful. And we start talking, and uh, eventually I made a transition in, in the – you know, his phone call was hilarious. He basically just said, uh, you got to do the gig or I'll kill you or something. Like that. I was like, I'm there. You know? So I did, me and Nick Johnson and Dwayne did the uh, Feral Gummit for about three years. It's like 2009 to 2012? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so that's, and the rest came from, from that, you know. And what are some of the, what are some of the lessons that you've learned from the colonel? I mean, the number one lesson to me is just, it's just always just being 100% honest, you know, because the guy has made a career just being himself. That's what he's done. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable. It's not many, not too many people have ever done that, especially in the music industry. You know? Well, Jimmy Herring talks about how when he would play with them, a colonel would do things behind him when he was soloing that other people had and that brought out different things in him. Would he do things behind your playing to you that would kind of uh, force you to reevaluate how you played the bass? Would he, musically, would he do that? Oh, man, he would... It was very cryptic, you know. It was like, you know, uh, 
I remember God, uh, so many stories of that happening, but two main ones I'll never forget when, you know, he told me, to, he, one day out of the blue, he goes, do you really need to buy a 15-inch speaker? And I was like, what are you talking about? Okay, that's bigger than what I have. So I buy this 15-inch speaker, bring it to the gig, and we start playing. He goes, God, that's thunder. That's, what is that? Well, you told me to buy it, you know. But uh, <laughs> but I, we're playing this gig in Florida, and man, it's he is he, he keeps saying I'm too loud. It's all it's just for weeks on end. So finally, I bring a volume pedal. I'm just playing so quiet, and it's still too loud. So I get you know rebellious. I'm like, you know what? Well, crank it up, and the crowd goes crazy. You know, and he was like, basically like, yeah, man. Let it settle and then build it. You can't start on eleven. Ah, it's all about the build. But he won't ever. He won't ever just straight up and tell you that, though. He he. he, he that's the thing about Bruce that I think is an important thing for people to understand. He, his lessons aren't things that he's just going to flat out and tell you. He's going to push you in the experience. I mean, with uh, Falcon and the drums, where he just. Every night, a new a new drum disappeared until he's just with a hi hat and a cymbal. Oh man, he would. We're, we're <laughs> I playing, mean, that snare and a cymbal. We're playing Wani. No, we're playing. Uh, what's the other festival that down there? Uh, not Magfest. Magfest. Yeah. And, and this one year, we had a good slot, like evening slot. We're all excited, and you know, a few thousand people. He goes the mic goes. Kevin Scott's gonna sing you guys a song. Oh god, I don't sing at all. So I go up to the mic, and you know, Dwayne's looking at me, and Nick's like, "What is he about to do?" And I was like, "This land is your land." God, I was like, "It's just too sex machine," because at least I can just yell, <laughs> you know. And so he always, but I think his his mentality of doing things is actually a lot better. And I've learned because I run bands, you mm-hmm. know, and I think it, it kind of the way he is cryptic and very precise of what he wants at the same time. Is important because it'll it'll separate lifers and the non-lifers. Because if if you if you can't handle that, it only gets harder. You know, it's like if you can't handle someone telling you to turn down. Like that's you you know you might want to start looking at yeah. yourself or choose something else because criticism is all about the name of the game. You know, but that's the dichotomy of the colonel that we kind of hope to get into today. On the one hand, he's all about improv and taking it out there. But on the, on the other hand, he knows what he wants in certain ways. So mm-hmm. how do you reconcile that? I mean, how do you – I mean, at what point are you – like, does he ever walk you through, hey, we really want to take I'm so glad out there extra tonight? Do you ever discuss improv? Never. No, but, you know, it's, speaking from the bass chair's uh, side of it, you know, because, I mean, he's – He's had some of the best bass players in the world on that gig. You know, O'Teal, Ricky, Ted Pecchio. I love Ted Pecchio. Is he, mean, Ted going to be here today? Do what? Is Ted going to no, be here today? No, I heard he's not going to be here, uh-huh. unfortunately. Yeah. But, hey, uh, Ted. You will be, he will be missed. This one goes out to you, We need you. I've seen Ted play with the Colonel so, so <clears throat> many times. Great, great bassist. But go on, I'm sorry. But, you know, so if I approach, of course, like, your natural reaction is to emulate what you've heard. You know, and there's always a voice in your head going, just do, you know, well, maybe you should just do what you were thinking, but then the ego will tell you, no, you didn't emulate this because it's been done. And, and he was, I mean, he was a master of kind of giving me a look if I, you know, played like like an O'Teal thing. Or, <laughs> you know, he kind of looked at me and, you know. <laughs> so he, he's just really good at kind of, he's, he's the best band leader 
uh, of his showing you how to become yourself, I think. Well, he, I think a way to say that would be he undresses the musicians. Sure. Do you like that, Rob? He does. Yes. <laughs> I sometimes undress myself at shows, so it works. Um, well, we know you have to get to sound check. Uh, is there any, want to close with maybe a story, uh, one other quick story of Bruce, or tell us how Zambi, what Zambi means to you? Uh, I mean, Zambi, you know, it's, it's so much, it's like a lot of stuff in the one, it's like a concept, it's a religion, you know, the Zambi religion, you know, we're all followers of the Zambi religion. Yet it's all about freedom too at the same time. But, But the thing is, it's freedom knowing, like knowing the limitations and the freedom because, you know, if you, if you're just because you're playing like free and out there still has to be intention behind it freedom with responsibility exactly mm-hmm. like if you just go up there and just like there needs to be vomit melody tone and time <laughs> like if, if, if you just have just vomit for no reason it's just you're not really vomiting you're just kind of like poser vomiting like dry <laughs> heaving you know <laughs> 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 oh man and the ministers receive departmental futures on consolidated paper. Moonshine! The chamber of the house was determined in the life of public opinion. Gubernation, the superintendent, directed the executive charge to conduct the agent under the offices of the front machine. Assembly of the vestry syndicated by the Chamber of Deputies was properly advocated by the civic minded. Moonshine! Increased revenues compatible with Washington's solution for fundamental environments that issue conservative application to a policy Kevin Scott. And again, check out his band Fork. Check him out. Just keep your ear to the ground here in Atlanta. You can see him very, very frequently. He and Dwayne Trucks, as we say in the interview, were served as the musical directors. Oh boy, that must have been a handful. Being a musical director for an event like this, huh, Seth? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> All these improvisational musicians and you have to tell them like, it, it, everything stayed on time though, somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Ke- I mean, gosh, Kevin, how many bands is Kevin in, though? It's crazy. Holding down the low end for the Matador soul sounds, Kevin hails from the Atlanta music scene. Um, Jeez, uh, man, he's he's just something, I tell you. He is just something. Well, we're going to move on. we got to mention Nancy Lewis Bagel here. Well, well, hold on. I wanted to tell you a little bit about the Matadors. Though. The Matador Soul Sounds. This is, oh, okay. uh, sure. this is a new album. You can uh, check it out, matadorsoulsounds.com. Uh, and the musicians on here, you've got, like I mentioned, okay, so you've got, Ivan, you've got Alan Evans, Eddie Roberts, uh, Chris Spies, or Spies, how do you say that? Anyway, Chris on keys. Um, Adrian, who's from uh, Oregon. Amazing singer. Uh, Then we already mentioned Kevin Scott and introducing Kim Dawson, who you've been kind of listening to a little bit, Rob. Uh, But this is some really soulful stuff. 
And what I mean, what an awesome, awesome, awesome lineup of musicians. These guys are on tour. Um, I don't know if they have any. They just finished their tour. I and mean, maybe they do some of the Jazz Fest this week. I don't know. Anyway, MatadorSoulSounds.com. Check them out. It's uh, one of those projects that I think will keep poking its head back here and there. Maybe they'll be on Jam Cruise. Mark, if you're listening, get them on Jam Cruise. And Fork is Henry Hayes' band. Again, Kevin Scott is now a permanent member. They have just released their third album on Grand, uh, Ground Up. It's called Throck. <laughs> Fork. Throck. Whatever the case. That here, let, let, Seth, let's just read real quick what I Go read. ahead. Uh, a similarly refreshing selflessness was evident as a nine-piece version of Snarky pulled into Atlanta. Henry Hayes Fork opened the first show with music from Throck. Their third release on the label, Fork demonstrated their stunning range and creative songcraft, particularly on Blue Diamonds, which moved from an odd introduction beat across quirky musical terrain to slide-enhanced ethereal realms. Hey, that ain't bad. You know, I got to tell you, I often read my reviews and cringe, but the last two have been all right. Last, the David Bromberg and this one have been all right. So Oliver Wood sat down with us, gave us a little bit of time, and uh, he's a great guy. I I got a little hung up on this because Oliver is a champion of the uh, pointing out the annoyance of people who treat musicians in an offhand fashion when they're audience members and how it can be frustrating because on the one hand, they're supporting the music, but on the other hand, they're disrespecting it. Very confusing to music lovers. Music liker behavior can be confusing to music lovers, right, Seth? Shh. As Rob would say. <laughs> well, I try not so the to. thing about the Oliver interview I want to highlight is it's a great example of how much the colonel meant to people. Right. And how much people meant to the colonel. And how his memory, too. Oh, Like, gosh, you could say memory. something like Snooks Eaglin here. Oliver said something offhand about Snooks Eaglin, and then years mm-hmm. later, here's Colonel found something Snooks Eaglin and held it and waited, and then his last gesture to Oliver was giving him so it's so strange in the well the interview will you'll hear all yeah. that story but yes. it that's just another example of things being closed out you know what i mean things being closed out um but with the colonel and oliver i mean oliver was friends with the colonel but they weren't they weren't he he wasn't part of like the uh the the lunch club or any of that sort of stuff nor was i but you still had that, you know, deep, deep relationship. So without further ado, let's just jump right in. Uh, Rob did a good job of uh, cutting this and slicing this for you all. So, uh, but I did a bad job in the initial interview. Got too caught up in my own personal thing on a day when we should have been there for the colonel. We, we maybe should have gotten more about the colonel out of Oliver. I'm a little, I apologize to my listeners. I'm very critical of myself. Uh, eventually down the road, you'll hear it and it's wonderful. But for purposes of this, I wish... Uh, yeah, All right, here we go. Oliver Wood. Billy Bob, Hagen Zoom, Johnny Mac and Ray. Every time I hear them, they'll be out to play. Sound got me wound. Time to settle down. If they play in tune, lose the problem soon. Hope they're still my friends when this song comes to an end. Right, right. 
I moved to Atlanta like in the late 80s, like maybe 89. And the, me and my buddies, the first thing, we went out to see randomly a band uh, at a place, I think it was called the Harvest Moon. And the band was the Stained Souls. And it was Tinsley Ellis, Colonel Bruce, and I know a couple guys from Widespread. Mikey and Dave Schools. And um, I, I honestly don't remember who exactly was in the band. But <clears throat> anyway, that's where I first saw Bruce. That's where I first saw Tinsley. And uh, and I you know, just remember, wow, that guy's a really good guitar player, talking about Tinsley. And then Bruce had his chazoid, and I was like, that guy's... Got something new and not, <laughs> not heard that before. And I do remember I got somebody threw a glass and it hit me in the head that night. Oh, whoa! And so, shock realization. It might not have even happened. The whole thing. I have no <laughs> idea. It might have been a dream. I might have got hit in the head first. Um, but anyway, uh, so later on, years later, a few years later, I ended up playing with Tinsley Ellis and go, being on the road with Tinsley Ellis as a young guy in my twenties. That was my first road gig. And he was buddies with Bruce, so we actually toured, did some touring with the Aquarium Rescue Unit, both Tinsley Ellis Band and Aquarium Rescue Unit. So that's where I got to know Bruce and Jeff Seip and Jimmy Herring and O'Teal and all those guys. Um, at the same time, I also met and got to know Derek, who was a 12 or something like that, um, and Susan, actually, uh, Tedeschi. So... You know, a bunch of those people I knew in the early 90s. That was the era that I got to know those people. So and uh, so, I got to hang out with Bruce. And, uh, you know, many, many years later, he would be he would officiate my wedding. And so he married my wife and I. Oh, yeah. where was that? That was about 10 years ago in Decatur. Yeah. So... That is wonderful. You're just staring admiringly. Sounds I like that. You don't usually look that way at yeah, our guests. Dreamy, huh? I was, I was trying to remember. I, mean, I know I went to the. I remember going to the party at the, at the house. I'm glad that you were trying time. to remember, not trying to think of a pun. Mm. You asked me to pun it down. You, you so came I, to a, a big ass party, maybe. Yeah, I remember at my a house. big ass party with Rebecca Jean Smith. Yeah, yeah. We used to have those big ass parties every spring. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So um, anyway, that's when I met Bruce. And when you're touring with Tinsley Ellis Band and ARU, is there cross pollination between the bands? Uh, yeah, I remember they were kind enough to let me sit in and and uh, and play with them. And well, wait, wait, wait a minute, what's that like jumping into that fire, sitting in with ARU? That seems daunting. Uh, it's pretty daunting, but at the time I was kind of young and didn't know much better and. So I don't I don't remember it that well. I just remember those guys are so nice, you know. They're so amazing, but they're also just regular sweet people. You they know, take the so. craft seriously, not themselves. Exactly. It's the mantra of the day. Well, exactly. <laughs> Bruce takes not only craft his craft serious, but he's also take craft services seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Although we don't have to such deal a, with that here. We have Fox a, Brothers Barbecue and Bojanic. Bojanic industry Bojanic. term right. craft services. <laughs> So, um, Bruce, so li- listening to King Johnson album, you'll hear a uh, Ralph, 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 or something like that. Mm-hmm. What, how did you get Bruce? What, what went down there? We went to you invite him to the studio and say, hey, I want you to just talk on yeah, the top of this? Yeah, I remember we had a, an instrumental song, uh, and we had a, small, a concept for it, and, and uh, I think that the title of the song was Tiger Piss. <laughs> um, 
I don't know why it has nothing to do with what Bruce talked about, which was Ralph. Uh, my, this is Ralph. Uh, there's something about buying a tractor. Something, or something. yeah. Right. I don't even Colin, remember. Uh, it's Colin, oh God, it's been a while since I've heard. But it was yet. a scenario that we gave him, and then we just gave him a microphone and let him run with it. And so the rest was his shtick, you know. Uh, it's just classic. Yeah, it's classic. So we should just, insert that at some point in the show. Yeah. Would he jump on stage with King Johnson too back in the day? You know, I don't think that ever happened. Uh, the only cross pollination with Bruce during King Johnson was that recording session. So, oh, yeah. Huh. And what um, in your time with Bruce? What would you say are some of the biggest lessons you've learned from him, through either him to you or through him to other musicians? Um, well, I like you know I think there's always a a lightness. I like the balance that he presents because it's like there's a lightness. He's never too serious. In fact, you never know if he's serious. Uh, uh, but I think. You know, he and he of course doesn't take himself too seriously, and he—that's that's a lesson by example right there to me. You know, your your mentors are not necessarily formal mentors; they're people who you just watch them and learn by their examples. So I always got that from him that none of this this whole thing is ridiculous. This whole industry, this whole art, is super special and super fun, and mm-hmm. and he has reverence for the music. But he also, it's just fun, you know. It should be fun, and and uh, did, you know, sometimes did, we get real wrapped up and, and stressed out about how important it is or how serious it is, and it's just music mm-hmm. and it's fun, you know. Is there a time that you remember where it's like, oh, I gotta stop taking this so seriously? Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know about consciously, but I, but it, I can think about that's just what subconsciously goes in my head when I see him and and. Uh, and he's very serious about music. Like, he is a musicologist of sorts, you mm-hmm. know. So it's not that he doesn't take it seriously, but he, he uh, I don't know, he just gets the spirit of it without all the other crap that can go with it, which is mm-hmm. it's a yeah. good example to, to see, you know. And you're, you, uh, being an Atlanta musician, if I say the word Zambi, it's not even just being exposed to Bruce. I mean, you're, you were surrounded by Zambi. So what does Zambi mean to you? Well, I remember... Uh, you know, back in, in, I don't know when that was, in the 90s, doing the first, some of the first Zambieland orchestra things, and, you know, that was another eye-opener when you, I was sort of in the in the blues world, and I was really, I was playing gigs at Fat Mats, and I was 20 years old, and I was, I was really into that and took it quite seriously, and uh, so... And then being invited to that and going and playing with all those different musicians, some of them really virtuosos and some of them just weird and cool and just getting exposed to, uh, again, you know, we have all these preconceived notions of how music should be structured and organized and then that just tears it all down and leaves it wide open for free, you know, that music, for those who don't know, Zambieland is, is very free-form, interpretive in the moment kind of thing and that's what it's about and it's just meant to be fun and and uh, so you don't know what's going to happen and that's another beautiful thing to be reminded of that you know music doesn't have to be all planned out and perfect and it uh, doesn't even have to sound good but I just was reminded of it because Bruce I just saw Bruce and he brought me this CD right here of Snooks Eaglin you go to the man's birthday party he gives you a gift Snooks Eaglin isn't that awesome Snooks Eaglin so 
<clears throat> anyway, uh, you know, I met Bruce in the early 90s. He married my wife and me in 2007, I believe. So, you know, I didn't see much of him for several years in there. And it, leading up to the wedding, he came over to talk about the wedding a little bit. And he sat on my couch and he said, so you got to keep in mind, Bruce and I don't know each other that well. Like we're not, like we don't call each other all the time. I'm not, I've just known him a long time. I don't know him really well. I know him as, his, as a musician and his per- persona, but we aren't super close. But, but you know that Bruce has a way of zeroing in on things. So anyway, he sits on my couch. I haven't seen him in, a, I don't know when, and we certainly haven't sat down and talked. And he, he said, uh, you know, eight years ago, you told you wrote down uh, your favorite guitar player on a piece of paper, and I was like, I did, um, and yeah, he told me to. He had told me to write down my favorite guitar player on a piece of paper and give it to him, which I didn't specifically remember. Until Can I later. guess? Um, yeah, so Freddie King. Uh, well, it was Snooks Eaglin right here. Oh, it was so, Snooks. So it was. So the thing about it was, it was. Some, I mean, that's a little obscure. Like Freddie sure. King, maybe yeah. more obvious. This is a little more obscure. So right. So I was like, he's like, what's your favorite? Who's your favorite guitar player? And this is, you know, I told him my favorite guitar player like ten years before that. Um, it was when we were with Tinsley, actually. That's when it was. So it might have been ninety-three. So it might have been fifteen years. Wow. Story got just got better. Fifteen years. <laughs> um, so, anyway, he, you know, he, I just figured he probably doesn't even know who that is. And I was like, Snooks Eaglin. And he's like, just pulls out this piece of paper, and sure enough, it was my writing on a piece of paper that he had saved for, let's say, fifteen years, because it sounds better than seven years. And uh, and there it was. And somehow he had stored that away. Which wouldn't be so weird if we were always hanging out, yeah. and like, because I never played in his band. I never sat around with him for more than a few minutes at a time. So, so that was my personal story that I. And then you walk in today, and he hands you that CD. So I walk in today, and he hands me the CD. And again, I've lived living in Nashville for the last five years. I have seen Bruce maybe once in five years, and he That's called me up about a couple months ago to ask me to do this, but otherwise we hadn't talked. So. So he walks in today, hands me a Snooks Eagland CD. So at the risk of stating the obvious again, the fact that he held that for so long indicates that he saw something in you, I think, as a performer at a young age, maybe? You're not buddy-buddy, so it's something else, Oliver. Well, I think I don't know what it is. I mean, he, he saw... He saw... Yeah, <laughs> it was shared passion for music, you know? We were both music nerds, so I think that's... Pretty much everybody here is a music nerd, so that's what yes. it's about. That's what it's about, and and... You know, it's kind of cool. There are special people out there who, who are considerate in a cool way. Like they remember birthdays. They even guess Did your he birthdays. get your birthday? Uh, he got close because I'm real close oh. with Derek. Like me uh-huh. and Derek and Tinsley are like just a few days apart. So I think when's he knows Tinsley? Tinsley is like third or fourth. I'm June second. Yeah, okay. I thought he was a Gemini. Yeah, yeah, and I think Derek's like ninth or something. So anyway, That's right. but. Uh, but, you know, there's people who just remember things about you, uh-huh. and they connect things to you, and I think that's cool, you know? He has a way like that, though. He, I don't know how, 
how he his memory just works in a mysterious way. Yeah, because you'll see him pull stuff out and just like, well, baseball. Yeah, I mean, come on, yeah. the man knows every stat in baseball. It's like, yeah. how? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. giving us his time actually Seth you were the real good one at breaking these people away from from all I helped on John Bell and I got Danny Wally and I had Carl lined up for after the show but the, all the others you pretty much got for us how are you doing it well it's my job right right but this is this is a little different I just I would <laughs> I, I a lot of these musicians I knew but I just go up to them and tell them what we're doing and ask for their time the big one was uh, Fishman because I, I didn't know Fishman I mean I met him a once or twice, and we talked about that in the interview. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that one was he was just next to Bruce, and I was talking to Bruce, and then I pitched it to Fishman. And you, you know, you the one thing on. I did was I name dropped some names from way back in the day as we were running up. Do you remember that? And I was like, no, yeah, I remember, and, no, I remember. Do you remember? You were like, hey, you remember Saint Nick, Marnie, Marnie Davis, Missy Buckingham, <laughs> uh, John Paluska? You're still cool with him, right? Yeah, that, was, that was a great interview. That was a landmark interview because it put us on RJB's radar. But so you know, Rob, is we're like going through this, and I'm just like having these flashbacks of the night, and like at one point, I'm seeing people's faces smiling and happy, and then I'm flashing to the the part of the night where everything shifted and and the the stare the the every, oh my god just well like, it's easy musicians that we so admire and so respect and are a source of so much joy and wonderful things to be backstage and seeing them all with these like confused and and frightened looks on their faces was was itself even separate from the from the tragedy that was happening with the colonel was was very tough to sort through but again i don't know if i see it as a tragedy at this point I really don't. I think it. Uh, Chuck Lavelle said right away that it was poetic, and I didn't get it. And now I do get it. It was very poetic, extremely poetic. The definition of poetic, yeah. you know, a guy getting his grease, going out the way he wanted to, surrounded by, surrounded by the people that he loved, people that he helped, you know, that wand, and the fact that that wand even touched our show, even the slightest little tiny bit, is probably the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. If you think about it, you know, to be able to do something right now that i love that feels natural that i wouldn't probably wouldn't be doing if not for colonel looking out for us believing in what we're doing sensing the purity of what we're doing and and really in his own cosmic intangible way helping it happen for us you know mm -hmm. amazing amazing so uh 
Where are we now? Who, who now we we're gonna now we're gonna argue and fight because this is the Peter Peter Buck and coming. Here's the deal. All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. Bing, 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 ladies and gentlemen. Well, first yeah. on the corner, weighing seven thousand four hundred and twenty-two pounds, Robert Turner. And in the other corner, his opponent, weighing a measly one hundred and sixty-nine pounds, hand-packed, pre-hand-packed already, worn down by his. <laughs> Um, I'm sorry. No, but before we get into that, I gotta say, <laughs> say it. I'm n- almost never nervous in these interviews, and my feeling is that these people give us their time. It's kind of a tacit admission that, yeah, like backstage, I, I'm not always the best. I, I, I might hang in the corner and get out because I feel like I'm invading their space. But when we do these interviews, they've given us their time. Okay, but in this case, it was Kevin doing us a favor, really, because Kevin's another guy who believes in what Kevin Kinney, Kevin Kinney. So he went to bat and grabbed Peter Buck and dragged him in the interview room for us and, and sat in with us because there's no way Peter w- would have done it alone. You know, and I, it's just the whole jam world. I think we're associated with the jam world. It's not Peter's thing. Interviews aren't Peter's thing. Peter didn't know us for anything. I think he kind of knew that it was a jammy thing and it wasn't whatever the case may be. He he was it was the only time I've ever been nervous in an interview in my life since the first one I did with Yorma in the 80s at, at the, some Worcester venue. <laughs> so get, get to the point. Point being, I was a little nervous and off my game. And at one, um, at one point, you hear me say, this is no REM show. But I wasn't putting down REM. It's just REM shows are more about the song, you know? They're not, I don't know. But then you tell the seal pun and the, and the interview comes to a screeching halt. But let's not. Uh, uh, we don't know whether or not. Uh, can I? Can I just tell you what happened? Or other reasons? No. The, he came in, gave us his time, and then as soon as he left the room, you're like, "Oh my god!" Said, "Just excuse me. We fucked this up. You scared him, or whatever you are." And then I'm like, "No." He's you're like, "He hated it. He hated it. He didn't want to be here." And I'm like, "Dude, look." He and he was in the bathroom. He had to go to the bathroom. Listeners, we want he went feedback. right to the bathroom. We want feedback. Listen to this interview. Email, and email us at insideoutwtns at gmail dot com, or just go to our website insideoutwtns dot com and email us from the site there. How bad did we did we screw this up? Can I still get Peter Buck on the Timeless Music Podcast someday? No. <laughs> well, hold on. Do you still have that podcast? I mean, that's it's so Johnny timeless. Mount. That's it's a Johnny so, Mount. It's so timeless that each episode. Sits for like six months. Well, this took off, and FJ Ventry's Good Luck Studios took off, so it's because of good things that each of our other projects took off. But Chris Mitchell of Humphreys McGee is going to help. Uh, we have other people. Ira Gross is going to help. But that's another story for another day. Here we go. Folks, email us. Tell, tell us what you think about this. This is the great, great Peter Buck from REM. And, uh, but can I just say also, he's, a fan, he's been a fan of Colonel... Like a tour head, he mm. he. Uh, I actually talked to him briefly later, and he told me a bunch of other shows. He saw a ton of Colonel in the seventies, but Peter Buck, like the Colonel, also helps out other musicians. Has always been reaching out and trying to help other musicians throughout his whole career. So there's that connective tissue as well, ladies and gentlemen. Here is here's us being schmuck <laughs> interviewing Peter Buck. Here's something for you to give us hell about when you meet us. A stained soul cringes at the small details in the mirror of embarrassment. You've been talking millions 
So uh, we're still here at the Hampton 70. And uh, Rob, who's with us? We're with friend of the show, former guest, Kevin Kinney, who's not back with us. And he has brought Peter Buck of R.E.M. and who's also worked with Robin Hitchcock, one of my favorite songwriters ever. Thank you guys so much for sitting here. And from the band Peter Buck. Mm -hmm. That's true. Three great vinyl LPs. Very hard to get, but they're great albums. Well, they're hard to get, by the way, because Mr. Isaacson, who owns the record store, who runs the label, is very, very unique, right? Well, they're available. I mean, you know, you kind of got to want them. But, you know, I don't really want someone to just pick it up, you know, because they're going out to buy cough drops and they see a record. You know, you want it, you go get it. You can get it at Third Man. I bought some uh, in Nashville at Jack White's place. Wax and Fax has it, I'm sure. So Um, anyway. Where did you, you... It's in the program... That you started seeing Hampton Grease Band in 1971, Peter. I'm pretty sure. It was either 70 or 71. I was a kid. Um, mm-hmm. Saw them in Marietta. Uh, talked to them a little bit. You know, kind of looked at Harold Kelling's fingers. Couldn't figure out what Glenn Phillips was doing. Um, <laughs> I still don't know what he's doing. Um, he's kind of above and beyond my capabilities. But, um, yeah, you know, I followed him. I saw I saw the, the Grease Band, the Geese Band, and then his solo, his spoken word stuff. I had a funny little experience. I was seeing Colonel Bruce was doing spoken word opening for somebody at some place near Five Points um, high, in the Highland area. And Seymour Stein was coming to Georgia to see the B-52s. They asked if the B-52s could be on the bill. So Seymour Stein came in. I was right up front. He came and sat at my table, and the first thing he sees is Colonel Bruce doing his spoken word thing. And he, and Seymour Stein, who must have seen everything on earth, just goes, what the hell is going on here? And I said, well, this guy's, you know, he's pretty cool. It's, he usually does music. He goes, well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, and, but I, Seymour bought me drinks all night, flitting to sit at my table. And then when, years ago when I was on Warner Brothers, I he said, hey, Seymour, you know, and I told him that, and he goes, oh, I guess you didn't remember it. <laughs> so, Kevin, yes. What's your first Colonel Bruce experience? My first Colonel Bruce experience is playing acoustic guitar for Glenn Phillips' brother Charlie Phillips. Oh, he was my lawyer for when Driver Cry and got signed to uh, Six Eighty Eight Records. He was my lawyer, Charlie Phillips, and Glenn Phillips was his brother. And um, I came to his house and uh, played a few acoustic songs. And Colonel Bruce had just gotten there after playing tennis, I believe. <laughs> That's not That's the same Bruce as first today. First time I met the Colonel at Charlie Phillips' house. But did he show up at like uh, a, a golf club and he's like, yeah, I just was playing tennis? But at first, I don't know. They, they played tennis together? I don't know. This was back in when he went, well, it was 25 years ago, 30 years ago. So Colonel was only 40. So, you know, seemed old at the time. But, you know, <laughs> I was 20. Five or something like that. I don't know. But uh, was that the question? Uh, no, that wasn't the question. But I okay. like the answer. I um, but the first, I really uh, got turned on to him from Flannoy Holmes, uh, who did the cover for Scarborough Smarter. Kind of was turned me on to the to the Colonel, and then because I was I didn't grow up in Atlanta, so I wasn't really aware of the Hampton Grease Band until I got into. Uh, the late 80s, you know, bronze, Kevin's from the Bronze Rocky. Age, I think, was the first mm-hmm. thing I started listening to. Was that about right, Bronze Age? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I think that it was, was like 80-something, 80 80 something. Yeah, it was late. Something. It was like something like that, you know. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a household when I, in my punk rock. When I grew up, I mean, grew up in my punk rock world. 
Uh, I lived with a guy, Caleb Lensler, who was a saxophone player, and uh, he had the biggest Sun Ra collection in the world and stuff. So, you know, uh, you know, uh, I kind of I liked Colonel because it was kind of fucked up. You know, <laughs> I was like, oh, this is fucked up. I like this. this is also known as going out. It's kind of groovy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got it. You know. But driving and crying goes out there sometimes. Is that was that was that at all a common nah, influence? We don't really go out there. Once in a while, no. Ah, you know. Maybe back when the drinking. You know, not never out there where it's like you know orchestrated. It's more just you know it was more about being stoned or something. But did he have an influence on the band? Mm, I wouldn't say so much, really. How about R.E.M.? I mean, he does. R.E.M. had a huge influence on us, yeah. Yeah, R.E.M. We have, uh, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, I have a lot of uh, Super 8 tapes of Driving Crying, Driving Around, listening to R.E.M., yeah. Uh, but uh, the, me and the Colonel bond on uh, being a band late, you know, we're, we go to dinner a lot, you know, every couple, once a month or something, and, but we, we bond on like being the training ground for guitar players, you know, just the rotating of guitar players and guitar players get better and then they get famous and then they move on, you know. So we bond over things like just running a band and, you know, it takes, as Peter knows, it takes a lot to run a band. Like he does his solo, you know, the thing, he's still, Peter is still touring in a van to this day with his, all of his side projects he does, you know, getting hotels and just, you know, you know, uh, you know, but musically, I just, I, 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 you know, I like how Colonel just kind of lays low and then he just kind of jumps in. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Miles Davis, he did in the later years. He just kind of was like lingering with intent, you know, <laughs> and then he just, bam, he'd be great and then he'd sit mm-hmm. back down again, you know. Like he'll take a little Cindy Lauper melody and take it to Pluto and back, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you surround yourself with a lot of great musicians, you know. That's what I, uh, yeah. that's what. You know, being an unselfish musician, I think, is probably what I learned the most. Now, being Georgia musicians, he's been very influential in the Georgia music world uh, in the way you just said, bringing all these musicians and kind of being the uh, the minor leagues for him right. and pitching them out there. Um, how's that <clears throat> How's that affected you guys? Uh, what kind of stories do you might have that interactive-wise? You know, I've been seeing Bruce's solo stuff for, gosh... <laughs> 30 years now and more than that and yeah he's always got some 18 year old kid who can really smoke it you know it's or in this the, case the uh, Taz who's what when he first 14. picked Taz up uh, uh, he was like 7 yeah I, what is he now 8 I mean he's <laughs> like 3 feet tall I mean we, we put a half hour to talk about his you know his uh, his life right what would you say about that yeah we, we've got 15 minutes with him we're going to go over his whole life mm-hmm. that's a better way to say it yeah most of your work that's improvisational is apart from REM. Would that be safe to say? What's that? You've you've done some improvisation, but it's typically away from yeah, REM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, REM. I'm a songwriter. I'm mostly, I'm a songwriter. That's what I do. You know, but I am sometimes in situations where it's more improv, um, like with Robin Hitchcock. Yeah, sometimes that it's, it's a little bit of improv there. Some of the other stuff I've done, the tuatara, some of the instrumental stuff, but. Um, yeah, you know, it's I, I tend to be more formalized. I mean, you know, it's verse, chorus, bridge, that kind of thing. I mean, that's what songwriting for me is. And, you know, and you'll notice that I'm playing on four songs tonight, and none of them are over four minutes. And by <laughs> and I, that's half 
of the shortest song that everyone else is playing. <laughs> that just, is, that, that actually answered. Rob's been asking the question to all the musicians today about improv and how they're going to keep it short. He just gave you the answer. Yeah, well, no, by having him like, here. <laughs> an event celebrating someone who's about improvisation seems like it's dying to run long. So that seems like it's a challenge. We well, yeah, you know, I mean, I, the first song I saw at Soundcheck had four guitar solos, a keyboard solo, and a drum solo. And I'm just going, that's the Soundcheck? This ain't no R.E.M. show. <laughs> yeah, you know, but that's just the way it goes, you know. Um, we're, we're kind of more being here as a tribute and doing our is, stuff. Our whole th- uh, our part of the show is an arc. It's all one song with three songs in it. That's how I see it. It's a, you know, it's a story arc. Uh-huh. I don't know, you know. I, I like, you know. I think a lot of a lot of the, the stuff that I do and Peter does and things like that. I think the whole show is an arc, you know. For driving crying shows, the whole thing is improv. In that, the band there's no set list for my band. There's no set list. The songs are always different. There's five different versions of Fly Me, five different versions of Honeysuckle. They all they're all, they're always different. And then it's the whole arc of the show is from start to finish is never the same you know because it depends on my mood it depends on you know if I'm trying to win <laughs> or I don't care or or whatever I will you know what I mean sometimes they're acoustic they're electric sometimes but the, there's no so um, you know I, as far as the jam uh, technical jamming of a song like a 20 minute jam I just get I get too tired you know and my bass player gets too impatient <laughs> You know. And let's face it, it's not for everyone. My bass player kicked me one time. And he was like, you know, or he, no, he didn't. You know, he said we were we were in ball, we were in uh, Philly. He goes, one of his friends said something about how he played too many solos. <laughs> he goes, hey man, how about you just like you know cut the solo, cut cut all that jamming out tonight? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, okay. Mm-hmm. So I did no solos. The whole every even the solos that are on the records, I went straight to the verse. I said. I did an entire show with Del Sol. He's like, that was amazing. Mm. <laughs> I was like, oh no. I've created a monster. So, but I think all of what we do, like what me and Peter do, our, our, what we do, our arc of our art is like more of all encompassing. Gotcha. You know, from start to finish. It's not a song. This song is a jam song. It's, it's a collection of all the. Because, you know, we'll get into this some other day, but the, the festival that Peter put on. In in uh, in Mexico was like not just a festival. So, uh, the sh- the lineup was incredible, but this lineup was every day. It was like every day. It wasn't just like one show. It was like every day for like two weeks or so. It's a, it's in, that's the improv. That's the avant guard of that because mm-hmm. that's insane. What festival is this? You know, no, it's it, it's not happening now. But I did this thing a charity thing in Mexico for three years. Yeah, so five, three, yeah. five years. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was. It, by the time it was done, it was like Bright Eyes. You know, uh, Jeff Connor. Tweedy, Drive By Truckers. Wow. Joseph Arthur, Phil Songwriters, Prophet. It was yeah. Peter Peter plays with the girl the girl from Sleater Kinney. They got a new record coming out. The entire... The Filthy Friends, yeah. Filthy Friends, so... One last question. I represent the fan side of it. Could I ask Peter Buck, the fan, what is your favorite era, or what are some of your favorite Colonel Bruce shows, and we'll end on that. Oh, you know, for me, uh, it was the Piedmont Park stuff um, in the early 70s. I saw him, and then later, Glenn Phillips. 
separately at Piedmont Park. And it was kind of the, you know, the hippie days came a little late to Atlanta and they stayed a little longer. So, you know, you, you could... As he looks at me with my long hair yeah. here. <laughs> but you could kind of see them in, uh, you know, the, so the Piedmont Park, I mean, I was like 13 or 14 and I was like, wow, this is pretty groovy. You know, it was totally cool. and But it was still real Southern too, you know. Um, and then like the Arts Festival came along a little bit later and kind of made it a little bit more legitimate, I guess. Is that still going on? I don't even know. Which arts festival? Well, it used, to, it used to be called the Arts Festival. It was in, in the park. I, I think yeah, it was called I think it's it's gone. Gone. Like it's 70, there. you know, five, six, seven, whatever. Because yeah, um, they had the lightning well, hit the did. tree and it got canceled that one year. And then I don't, I think no, it, you're the thinking of the art festival that Seal played. Art, art. No. No. Oh, right. boy. Gotta throw them out there sometimes. You well, know. Okay. I so I don't, maybe it wasn't the arts festival. That's what I thought it was called. They, they had all these bands in Atlanta, so that played in the park. So I saw the Peanut Park stuff a lot, and that was for me my favorite. Well, thanks for doing this. More more importantly, thank you for being here and celebrating the Colonel. And then he went to the bathroom, Rob. It, he had to go. You know, listen, I'm a father. I understand when a kid's got to go potty. I want a mulligan, Peter. His work with Robin Hitchcock alone is enough to make me love the guy. And he's beyond that part of one of the great rock bands of the 80s. You know, some of the greatest songs in rock come out of R.E.M., would you not say? Mm-hmm. Which Michael Stipe and Bruce Springsteen just sat in with Patti Smith. Really? At, yeah, at the Beacon. Look that up. It's all over. Jam bass head video. There's... There's well, Michael Stipe, who doesn't come out much anymore, it's kind of laying. Yeah, up. I don't know when the last time he did. That's okay. So now we're going after the fact. The last two snippets. One will be f- with Vince. Did I even put the episode number down? We did an episode with Vince not too long ago. Do you know the episode number, Seth? Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll pull it up here. Um, but we yucked it up with Vince for a while. Yuckada, yuckada, yuck. Possibly our funniest interview, but we got a little serious toward the end. Mm-hmm. And um. Like I said, he crystallized my thoughts on on Taz and <clears throat> on a me. few other things. And Vince is, um, you know, it, it, it could be easy to see Vince Herman and not get the depth of who he is because he's so fun loving and well, so. But if you want to, if you really want to listen to the whole entire episode, I recommend episode number forty six with Vince Herman. Yeah, Seth's aunt calls in. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, here. Uh... Here's the uh, snippet of us talking about the Colonel, uh, uh, talking about that night, because Vince nailed it uh, so well. So take it away.
When we realized that when someone from the crowd came up and rolled him over, then we realized that, you know, that something was very wrong. I, um, I, I kind of entered this black hole at this, at that point, And we were kind of whisked off the stage and, and I ended up in the, in the stairwell, um, with a couple guys and they were kind of like keeping people, you know, off of, you know, behind the door there and and we didn't know what was happening on the other side of that door um but we were all kind of thinking the worst sitting there just the three of us in that stairwell contemplating life death the line between them the cosmos astrology energy of the spirit and standing there not knowing what was happening was this dark vacuum hole uh, that I've never experienced and time stopped everything stopped it was hanging in suspended animation of the world just being reorganized at an atomic level I mean, everything we just knew that everything was going to be different for all of us after this moment. The sands had shifted. <clears throat> was it Kevin Scott, one of those people? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, let's talk about... Let's lighten it up here, though. Let's talk about Zambi, because that's that's ultimately what... what uh, all, what brought all those folks together. And to, well, be, and to real quick, you should be proud because you very much do embody it. Mm-hmm. So you should absolutely take solace in that every day of your life. So tell, tell, tell our listeners here what Zambi, how, how would you describe Zambi and how did you first come into Zambi? Zambi is a microbiologist for the city of Atlanta in um, uh, vector control in uh, bacteria. Uh, Joe Zambi is, he's a, you know, city employee. And, uh, so of course he's everything. Crowds part for him. Yes. Um, Zambi is a tribute to the mind of Joe Zambi. Um, because trees are tributes to the sky. Houses are tributes to the basement. Um, air is water. That is what Zambi means. Um, there's the bridge. There's Bert. It's a Zambi to Bert. Um, when Bruce left the building, all the walls between things just collapsed. Everything was everything. All is one. There, There's no difference between people, things, time and space doesn't exist. It's 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 existence man and and you hit the button with bruce and boom this explosion of the of the universe just happens in your mind every time i think of bruce now did you you achieve the grease he often spoke of you think absolutely Uh, that he said that and and (laughs) 20 lived it is just mind-boggling can you explain what grease is for our listeners um 
one of the encounters I had with Greece was at the High Sierra Music Festival. Um, we had we had stopped at a um, at a grocery store and uh, was looking for some paper, and uh, it came out of this. The butcher said, "Like, well, I've got this roll of paper here, man. That, that got some grease on it. We we can't use it. You want this?" Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It was it was a roll of probably about five hundred, seven hundred fifty feet long, of butcher paper, with a big ass grease stain on it. And we walked around the High Sierra Festival, passing out grease tickets. <laughs> that's one of the meanings of grease. Yeah, that's one. <laughs> grease is the word. Have you heard? It's emotion. Yeah. Grease is what makes music uh, move. Uh, music would be building blocks if they didn't move. They'd be concrete barriers rather than water. So there's some element yeah. of interconnectivity to Greece. Absolutely. Greece is between all, all elements of the universe. You have black holes. You have atoms, you have protons, electrons, and then you have grease. Would you learn things? <laughs> would you learn things from Colonel without him saying it, or would you more learn directly? Was do you, do you find most of what you learned from him was things you had to were things you kind of had to figure out yourself, and he would just kind of push you in the direction. What I learned the most uh, from Bruce is paying attention. And uh, caring and remembering what people are about, getting right to it, you know, um, and taking the time in an undistracted, un, uh, unfacebooked, unmessengered kind of place where you acknowledge people for all that they are. And that's one of the things that, that Bruce did. Like Del McCurry, uh, he sees the glory in every person that they meet and honor that. That's, that's what I learned from Bruce. The music stuff, the improv, and all that stuff, it's, it's, it's simple. You just turn yourself off and you let the universe play, mm -hmm. you know? But that and always answer your phone. <laughs> always answer are, your are phone. Always show up. On time. On time. But oh, just to, you know, his mm -hmm. the best advice I ever that he gave me that he gave that I heard him give people, and that I've heard people tell me that he they got from him is, you know, it's, it's not you know I really want to do this. No, you can do anything you want. Just show up, just keep showing up. Eventually, you'll be doing it. It's mm -hmm. just that simple, you know. If, I mean, if you if show up and it's not good for you, you'll know and you'll stop showing up. But mm -hmm. if it's good for you and you want it, just show up. Do you take significance from the fact that his last gesture was to take the solo from one and give it to the youngest person on stage and then have that person be the person whose feet he lies by as he gets his grease? That kid played a show the following day in New York on Broadway in the School of Rock. Amazing. He will never, he will never play a soulless note in his life now. Exactly. Yeah. You know. So, um, Scott McCready... I had lunch once a week with Bruce. He was told to arrive at 11.54. <laughs> and he did. He'd drive around the block until yeah. his time. Bruce would show up at exactly 11.54 with Johnny. Um, 
This just occurred to me last night. Did that show end at midnight? Just before, I do believe. I wonder if Bruce fell at 11.54. I wouldn't be surprised. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, there, we can certainly 100% know that for a fact because we've you know, friends mm-hmm. are the video crew. So, And in case it's, it's unclear timed, to anybody, but, this was yeah. a frustration in the immediate wouldn't aftermath. Wouldn't surprise me. I mean, and, and I guarantee you, I, mm-hmm. I would I would put my house on the online saying that he, he that he did go on an odd number that he did not die at eleven thirty or twelve mm-hmm. o'clock. It was it was a seven. Well, it was it, a three. They've been having this lunch for years, yeah. and it was always arrived at eleven fifty four. You know, you don't know the reasons why Bruce tells you things. You know why six is now thirteen. There was, you know, there's some mathematical shift in the universe that some physicist was talking about that Bruce read, hmm. and I'm sure that's that six is now thirteen thing is truth. It's, it's an improvement on Hendrix's six was nine. Yeah. Hmm. But but yeah. one thing in the immediate <clears throat> aftermath too, people who weren't in the know were, were critical of the of the musicians for not responding and and. They don't realize that a it's something that he had done many many times in the oh, past. Yeah, that's, that was so Bruce. To, but to b typically when someone's in danger, they're reaching out for help. They're not cautiously guiding themselves down to the ground carefully. But when you watch the video, there are the everybody's smiling and warning, pointing. But there are it is like you're not sure. What, what what was going on in your mind at that moment? Was it was, was there any second thoughts of it, or was it completely like, oh, there he goes, he's just doing his thing? Very very much, he's he's doing his thing um, until that person from the crowd rolled him over. I, I it was the camp was I it thought, the cameraman? I thought, man, you're I think really it was Sheila. Yeah, it was. Yeah, um, the. Uh, the thing that, that that got us, and I remember looking at, at Warren and 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 uh, Derek, thinking, "Wow, he's really torturing that boy," <laughs> you know, later because he's it, Taz is turning around looking at me like, "Is this okay?" And I'm like, "Yeah, it's it's fine," you know. And and, and Derek and they're all like, "Like, yeah, yeah, he's really working it." Man. And and Taz is just turning around like, "This is not." Taz didn't think that it was okay, I think, probably from, from the go. Yeah. You know? But he knew the Colonel wanted him to play. Yeah. And like you said, he'll never... I think that was the one thing the kid was lacking, to be honest, was mm-hmm. you. it's not just to be technically good, it's to be informed mm-hmm. and to be wizened. And in one grand gesture, like you said, he'll never play a solace note for the rest of his night. That's hugely significant. Mm-hmm. You crystallized my thoughts yeah. eloquently there. The uh, The thing that that blew me away was that there was no um there was like no transition at all he was up and he was gone right yeah he's there was no, there was no struggle there was there wasn't a twitch there wasn't right anything it was on and off the switch was turned
That was Vince Herman. And again, if you want to hear the whole episode, it's episode number 46. And that whole night after, and we're here in the, again, we're in the undisclosed location where I came to grips with all this. Uh, a lot of walks. Walked through a graveyard that night. Um, one of the things I was thinking about was Brandon Tasnader hour and how this might impact him. And it was another thing where my thought went 180 mm-hmm. over the over the night. I thought Less. one thing in that night, and by the morning, I had convinced myself of another. Go ahead first, you. I don't know. Talking about Taz, though, last week, uh, we opened up the 420 Festival. I did what's called the Morning Brew. It's available. You can actually look at it at Sweetwater 420 Festival's Facebook page, the Morning Brew. It's a Facebook Live video. And it was really about just talking about the event. Our Twitter profile right now, I put up, by the way, I put that up, Seth didn't, is you and Taz. Oh, really? Yeah. Thank you. So... With Taz, though, we started chit-chatting about him and stuff, and then the colonel came up, and I really tried not to go there because I wanted to keep it really light. But Another time, another place. Yeah, exactly, and we'll have Taz on. Oh, he's coming back through town. We're going to go ahead and do that at the Terminal West show. Need at least 90 minutes with him. Uh, we'll, we'll go, where, but we can. I mean, he has a bedtime. Taz, you're Kidding. listening. Not, give us 90 minutes. We'll so, do you right. So, yeah, it was just, it was... It, it, it was heartwarming to hear him talking about the colonel, and I definitely would suggest everyone uh, take a listen. He will never play another soulless note the rest of his life. Yeah, I was worried about that kid. By the morning, I was excited for him, and he started writing. He hadn't really written songs before before then. He started writing after that, which ties back into what I said in the beginning of this ep- of, of this tribute here of the show is that the colonel's effect. I mean. It's it's not a coincidence that so many people are going in this journey. I mean, right? Absolutely. So we have one more clip. We don't. We can't really set it up because the interview hasn't been conducted yet. It's but a great interview. One it of the is best ones. Be, it's going to be awesome. Why don't you Why don't you go ahead and tell us who Johnny is? Johnny Knapp is a keyboardist that he uh, actually he got polio when he was a kid. I mean, he's played with everybody. Like Charlie Bird Parker invited him into his band, and he decided not to go. And I'll talk about that he tried to get charlie bird parker to do yoga he was because one of, yoga helped him he couldn't oh, we'll talk about that we'll talk about john i've been listening but there, who is he he is a legendary keyboardist who was part of the new york scene for decades he would host these jam sessions that everybody want, would want to be a part of but he also moved down here to georgia uh, uh, about 15 years ago he's in his 90s right yeah he had considered himself retired kind of lived a nobody really knew he was here kind of lived a low-key life and, and guess who found him and shined a light on him and the colonel would bring him out to his shows. And the colonel was, oh my god! Anytime he would have Johnny coming, he would be like, it's, it's, I would see like a child's face in Colonel. He'd be, he'd be so excited. He really adored him. He really did. And uh, a significant thing from May one, two thousand seventeen, Hampton seventy, the event was that the colonel did some music at the beginning, and then he left. And then there's this whole buildup, all this music. And then the colonel returns to the stage as a big, Colonel Berzam, he comes, he comes out onto the stage. What is the first thing he does, Seth? Happy birthday, Johnny. Puts a light right on Johnny. Completely shines a light on Johnny Knapp and talks about who he was. And in Colonel's mind, perhaps Johnny should have been the one being celebrated and not him. But, you know, that's the colonel. But Johnny Knapp, yeah, we're going to talk about Billy Holiday. We're going to talk about John Coltrane. I, 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 have been going through a Coltrane rabbit hole in my research. I'm so fascinated by John Coltrane, dude. Hearing musicians talk about him is amazing. We're going to get Johnny talking about him. But here's Johnny talking about what you'll find out tomorrow. (laughs) All right, here we go. 
because you might forget. I got the letter from your street. And it volunteered an acceptance. From an entire social group, it spoke of vapor trails and different frequencies and said all was affordable. You can't put it on hold anymore. The bookkeeper had an eraser and memory is nothing about a gimmick. As you might forget, memory is nothing but a gimmick. Do you think your parents are on the chitlin circuit and hanging around in minor league stadiums? Oh, it's, it's someone else's life you're living. And just to make it work, Memory is nothing but a gimmick. And you might just forget. Memory is nothing but a gimmick. I remember we did a job once and he took his guitar and he put it in the strangest position. He put it over his head, put it between his legs, he put it behind his back, he he put it behind some of the furniture that was on stage and played it. And everybody in the band um, ended up doing something silly, like almost like to... Um, uh, echo him and here I was and I had to do something <laughs> <laughs> so out of no place I lifted my left leg and I, I put it up in the air and I was banging it on the keys and I had no idea what the reason I did that <laughs> I had no idea I would do that and because that's crazy to bang my instrument with my left leg but here I was doing it and uh, it was almost like I was possessed with the ghost of Hampton so I had to do it and I think even unknown Vincent or was that you? it was you Andy someone caught it on camera and it was Andy who caught it. And there was one other time the the spirit of Hampton got me. We were working uh, Terminal West. And Bruce was in front of me where Ron is. And I was playing. And all of a sudden, there was two beats of silence. And out of no place, I went into the Zambi mm -hmm. thing. It was like I couldn't help it. <laughs> like I was possessed, really. And everybody in the audience did it. And then I did it again. And there's a picture 
of Bruce turning around. Someone took that picture too. I don't know, that maybe was you. That could have been the unknown Vincent. But, but both times, and there are times I played, it seemed I was possessed. If I can use that word, really, because I'm, I'm a very straightforward person. But there are times I did things I would never do because it, the closest thing I can get to who would that be would be Bruce. And I think he took over my body at that time. <laughs> I really do. So it's weird to see how he got that, that man who's a kid from the country. He got him to be one of the best players ever with that instrument. Herring ended up being a very good player, the drummer and the bass player, and were phenomenal. It's been said not to worry. Cause you've been standing on a firm foundation. Go ahead and sharpen your tools. The buck doesn't stop anywhere anymore. When you get to the end of that path, you'll find out that memory is nothing but a gimmick. And boy, I'm heading down to Hall County. I'm on a plane. I'm on a plane. I got to hand it to you, Rob. Without you doing the interview yet, you did a really great job. I was really on my game. You were so on your game. I mean, I'm going to be really on my game. Ron Currens is the third voice if he spoke. Uh, thank you, Ron, for being part of that. Um, another guy I'd like to shine a light on. And he um, this week broke his kneecap. Oh. Shattered it. Yeah. He's a big guy, too. Yeah. So he's still, he's like, I'm still going to Dixie Dregs tonight. And I'm still going to Johnny Nap tomorrow, so we're working on rides and trying to get everything lined up. Love you, Ron Currens. You know, there's so much of Colonel's history that we have because he of his... He would be at almost every Colonel show. Yeah, and he would document it. And I'm uh, very much... I'm a fan of the tapers and the documenters almost as much as the musicians in the maybe, scene. Maybe we uh, pull something for the end of the episode from him. Perhaps. I think I think something from Hampton 70 would be great, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um Still putting it all together. Johnny said he's going to play some solo stuff, so we're going to, I want to um, include that because Colonel would like a light shined upon him, of course. Love you, Colonel. Miss you, and thank you for watching over us. You know, I feel it at, at, in the strangest of places, but I do try to look at it right, and I do feel it. I do feel you, and well, thank you. That's, I say it every day. I don't feel like he's gone. I feel like he's right next to us, right next to me all the time. The craziest thing, and... You know, I'll take crap for this, but, you know, 
I was working on that episode, and by the way, Josh Stain was staying up late with this. It was Josh at his best? He, you know, there was one point we were up at three in the morning, and it was just him and me talking. And I was talking. Wet Waffle was up texting me, helping me through too. Thank you, Jefferson. Um, went through and did all this, and then at the end, opened up a tweet, and it said thank you, and a blank tweet. Right when I finished, right when I had sent the last thing off to Josh. Thank you. I'll never forget that. Completely freaked me out. I well up just thinking about it. So thank you right back, Colonel. And thank you all for listening. Um, Hopefully you got some memories and good feelings back in you. Um, We miss you, Colonel. And um, you'll always be with us, that's for sure. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a good night, day, afternoon, morning. And we'll be back with uh, Jesus. Jesus! How, how, else, how else can you follow the colonel? With Jesus. You got to go to Jesus. It's, uh, the, yes, it's the uprising. Eric Coombs. Uh, uprising? Uh, you know what I meant. <sighs> Just you, Jesus. You really don't want Jews talking about Jesus, do you? Well, You're I mean, not going to get it right. Yeah.